If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, I will read verses 32 through 39. We'll be spending the majority of our time this morning on verse 39. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward." For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So first, I want to tell you what my plan is this morning. Hopefully we'll be able to go through each stage of the plan for explaining this text. Uh, The first part of the plan is to give you the context. What is going on? Why is the author saying this? What has brought him to this point? It'll be a little bit of a review, but it will be with an aim to help us put this verse in its place. The second part of my plan this morning is to ask two questions about this verse. The two questions are, I'll just go ahead and give them to you. How can he say this about his hearers? And secondly, how can we say it of ourselves? And then I want to make two important notes about the verse before we get into uh, each different part. The two important notes are the plurality of this verse, verse 39, and then the flavor of boasting in this verse. And then finally, we'll look at the two parts of the verse. Then we'll conclude with some applications. That's the plan. Uh, Stick with me as we look through these. So first, the context. He's resuming exhortation. Or encouragement. This book, the whole book of Hebrews, really has the pattern of explanation, warning, encouragement. Explanation, warning, encouragement. The whole book has been in a cycle over and over of doing exactly that. Explanation, warning, encouragement. And this verse, verse 39 specifically, falls into the place of encouragement. This is encouragement. And so I want the majority of this sermon to take on the flavor of an encouragement. So if you leave today and you feel no encouragement whatsoever, I've failed, or maybe you haven't listened, but that's my point, to encourage you as you walk out of here and to give, it, give you a biblical encouragement. We could come in here and I could just speak and tell you all the awesome things about yourselves, but what does the Bible give us to encourage us? 
In this chapter, chapter 10 specifically, we have seen two alternatives for life, particularly beginning in verse 19, and we'll let this verse give us those two categories. We have those who shrink back, those who fall away, those who neglect the assembly of the body, those who, whose confidence wavers, those who have lost all zeal for anything with the Lord, those who sin deliberately or happily and unconcernedly. Those who shrink back. Now, now what's important is that we understand this, this category of shrinking back, of falling away, is much more biblical and significant than modern categories of engagement or attendance and giving. Typically, if you're attending and giving in a church context, you're considered good or in the clear The Bible gives us different categories. In the negative, it gives us first those who fall away, those who neglect, those who shrink back. And likewise, it gives us the second alternative for life. Those who have faith. Those who hold fast. Those who draw near. Those who love to show care and concern for brother and sister. And meet together with the body. Those who repent of sin. And show genuine sorrow for sin. And cherish the gospel, etc., etc. Again, that's different than showing up and giving. Those who hold fast to our confession without wavering. It's, it's so much more than what can be seen on the outside or, or known if you're just in a barely meaningful relationship with someone. And the point is, there's really no in-between. If you've heard the gospel, if you've received the word, if you've understood anything about the claims of Christ, there's really only two alternatives for life. You're either of those who shrink back or you're of those who have faith. It's just two. There's no gray. It's not a wide border of a demilitarized zone for you to just hang out. It's either this or this. Once you've been exposed to the light of the gospel... If you've ever heard it at all explained in all its fullness and glory, then there's no other road, no other path. You will be headed towards destruction or to life, shrinking back, holding fast. And also, this is to place verse 39, again, this whole point is in this first section, it's context, to place this verse in its place is to help us understand that there is real danger of falling away. It's not just the idea that there are two ways and only two ways. It's the fearful truth that one can seem. It's very important that we underscore that word. One can seem to be doing well and be on the path to life, but then lose interest and turn their ship around and go the other way. And I would not be taking so much time in these preceding weeks If I had not seen this happen so much, I hope you can sense the burden of heart I have and the deep sorrow that's there from people I have known. And I would not be pleading with you to understand this horrifying risk of falling away if it were not a problem in every church and in every denomination. And I would not be insisting that we change the way we think if it were only an issue far off somewhere 
somewhere we've never been. It's here. It's our tribe. It's the SBC. There is no exception. The majority of those I have personally known who are now no longer following the Lord after having been passionate about the Lord were in healthy churches at one point. Churches that I would call healthy And we are kidding ourselves if we think we can expect anything different by doing and thinking the exact same thing. And I will not accept for myself, and I plead with you not to accept for yourself a jaded posture of collateral damage. Well, some are going to fall away. It's just a numbers game. Because that's not how the author speaks. He is pleading with this congregation. Hold fast to Christ. Don't fall away. Consider Jesus. Consider one another. Don't go back the other way. All that energy and passion that we've seen and and the the brilliance of his mind in unfolding the glories of the gospel is, is pushed on that point. Don't fall away. Hold fast. And that's what I'm pleading for you to have towards one another and towards those you know outside of this church. Put all of your resources to that. And then, beginning in verse 32, he gives them a pastoral encouragement to remember how they endured through trial, or during trial. So, the verses Brother Paul covered last week were the author speaking to encourage those he loves so much. He's essentially saying, remember how you suffered and endured suffering for the sake of Christ. You suffered and joined those who were suffering and were cheerfully plundered of your possessions. Remember that. Remember the joy in Christ you had in spite of the suffering. And maybe even because of the suffering. And so in light of that encouragement... And a final reminder of the Lord's day, this looming judgment, he encourages them with this stunning statement in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So now we come to the first question. How can he say this? These are the type of questions you need to be asking about your Bible when you come to a statement like this. This is, this is an amazing, stunning statement. How can he say it? He loves these people. He knows them to a degree, but he's been gone for a while. And he's writing to them because he's heard some things that concerns him. And he says to them, to those who receive this letter, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Even in the context of him pleading with them not to shrink back. This is a stunning exhortation, just a declarative statement. We are not of those who shrink back. How can he say this? The inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write Scripture is not like magic, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't tell him, oh, by the way, everyone who's going to read this letter in the churches that you're sending it to are uh, going to preserve, uh, persevere and hold on till the end. So now you can write verse 39. That's not how inspiration works. So what is going on? The verse itself, pay attention, the verse itself is 
or it embodies the posture of faith. In a way, it is a self-fulfilling statement. When said and believed honestly from the heart. Now that doesn't work with every statement, right? I could just say, I'm rich. That doesn't make it the case. Even if I believe it really sincerely, right? That might be richness of soul, but if I'm thinking I am monetarily rich and I really believe that, that doesn't make it so, okay? We're not name it and claim it gospel, But to be able to say, verse 39, consistently and honestly, means that it is true for your life and that you are a part of this we. It's just like when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. There are many people who say to Jesus on the last day, Lord, Lord. So what Paul is saying is that if you say this from the heart, if you believe this, if you cherish this truth, if you're saying it consistently from your core of your being, if you say Jesus Christ is Lord, then it is true of you that he is your Lord. So if you can say, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. If you can say that of yourself, and it is true and honest from the heart, then it is true of you. So his appeal is for them is to join him in this confident assertion and make this the case in their hearts. And that helps us answer the second question. How can we say this of ourselves? When you're reading the Bible, you need to read it with a feeling and flavor of possession. This is truly God's book. Amen? It is from him. But to whom does it belong? It belongs to you. It is given to you. It is your book. It belongs to the saints. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is mine. In the same way that all things are ours through Christ. But this especially is your book. The sacred trust from God to you. And so all scripture is God-breathed and profitable so that the man of God would be competent, equipped for every good work. Everybody has favorite verses or verses that stand out to them. And I've always wondered a question, what makes certain verses stand out more than the rest? We think of John 3.16, Jeremiah 29.11, Philippians 4.13, and many, many others. There's always a problem with that of taking it out of context, but I want this verse, Hebrews 10.39, to enter that stratosphere of important verses in your life. Right up there with John 3.16 or whatever else that you would say. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. you got to own the text. Instead of just gaining inspiration from beautiful words which is the danger of just thinking about Scripture without owning it, right? Because you can be inspired by things you don't own, right? You can read a 
a line of poetry and have no idea what the author is intending and be inspired and be moved or encouraged because it's so beautiful. I want you to own this text and it to be yours. In the same way that when we quote Psalm 23 and we say, The Lord is my shepherd. For those of you that have gone through the valley of the shadow of death, when you say that, you're not just reciting some beautiful poetry. You're owning it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's what I want verse 39 to be for you. I want you to be able to say this of yourselves. So, two notes before we get into the verse itself. I said we needed to note the plurality of this verse. The, the we flavor. But we. He doesn't say but I. He doesn't say a singular you. But we. Part of the way that we can honestly say this about ourselves is that we say it together. The dominant note of this text is that it is something that the body does. This whole chapter, really. The exhortations are given to the whole group. The warnings are given to the whole group. And this pronouncement, this declarative statement, is given to the whole group. It is, as it were, a vow to follow and belong to the Lord. And that is always seen in a group setting, especially in the Old Testament. Because the reconciliation that God accomplishes in Christ on the cross is not for an unrelated group of individuals. It's for the body. Okay? Our salvation is inextricably linked to community. He redeems a body, a people for himself, for his own possession. You cannot be a Christian unto yourself. So one of the ways towards assurance, that's what we're talking about this morning. This, this whole, the whole flavor of this text for you to be able to own this and say this of yourself is to grant to you the bold assurance of faith. And for you to be able to have that, it is a, it is a treasure at the end of the road of meaningful community with your brothers and sisters. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We see this all through chapter 10. We see that we're supposed to stir up one another to love and good works, the very foundation of our faith. We see solidarity with those that are persecuted. Even if I'm not suffering, I want to join those who are, who are part of this body of Christ so that I can participate with them and be one with them. Even if it means joining them in their suffering. So let's say it in a general way. Assurance, as well as perseverance, is the product of God's grace at work in the body of Christ. Let me say it again. Assurance, as well as perseverance, is the product of God's grace at work in the body of Christ. And let me just say, because I think this is a weakness in our culture, not segregated body life. Paul says in Ephesians 4, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined together, joined and held together by 
every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If your Christian life is no knees, no shoulder, no hip joints, but you have your neck and elbows, you're still really skewed and messed up. Okay, Try to live life without your knees and elbows and hip joints. But I've got a good spine, so what? Every joint with which it is equipped. If you're, if you're cutting off brother and sister that the Lord has providentially brought into your life, if you're not opening your heart to as many as you can, I understand that's difficult, especially for the introverts in here. But if you're not seeking meaningful connection with every joint with which it is equipped, you are cutting yourself off from assurance. Second note that I want us to see here is the flavor of boasting in this verse. Let me just read again. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is boasting. Okay? And if you understand, uh, if you know your New Testament well, you know that boasting is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. And on the one hand, we see statements like this, so that no one may boast. But on the other hand, we see, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul say, but I will boast in nothing but the cross. What is this idea of boasting? I was helped massively on this by a theologian by the name of D.A. Carson. If you don't know him, you should. He said that a boast in the ancient Near East was essentially your battle cry before you rushed into battle with your opponent. We've all seen the movies, maybe all of us, where the the sides line up and one side chants that we have what it takes. Our numbers may be smaller, but we've got so-and-so and and -and so-and-so among us, so we're going to defeat you. And they're encouraging each other, essentially, to rally around this cry, this boast, so that they have the courage it takes to charge into battle. That's what a boast is. So when Paul says, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So this verse is a bold boast of assurance in Christ. We are of those who believe and preserve their souls. We are brothers and sisters I'm inviting you, even as the author is inviting you, to say that truthfully in your heart, to buy in to the boast, as it were. If I were to rephrase this, borrowing from some excellent script writing, I would say something like this. Dear brothers and sisters, I see in your eyes the same weariness, fear, and doubt that would take my very heart. A day will come when the love of many will grow cold and when the lights will have all gone out and the fires have died and only the remnant barely remains. But this is not that day. The day of the man of lawlessness will come. A day of false signs and wonders and of ruin and malice. And when the age comes crashing down to an end, but it is not this day. Today we fight. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls by the love 
and strength of heart and all that is good and true and beautiful, I bid you hold fast to Christ, sons and daughters of God. So now we look at part one of this verse. Part one, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. This phrase, those who shrink back, is really just one word in Greek. It it, it means something like this. Those who make a cowardly retreat. Those who silently slip away. Those who secretly desert the army. We are not faint-hearted deserters, is the flavor of what he's saying here. What would be the motivation to shrink away, to slip away, to desert this army this before we charge into battle? It is what Jesus speaks of in Luke 17. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. There may be many motivations and reasons for distancing yourself from the cause of Christ. And there will be many more in the days ahead where the claims of Christ and the mandates of Christ and the rule of our Lord is so offensive that to even say you're a Christian is blatantly offensive. It's already getting that way more and more than it's ever been, at least in this nation. And I think that's more just uncovering things that have already been there from the beginning What are you going to do? You're going to shrink back? You're going to silently slip away? Not associate, not affiliate? It's happening now. But he says, we are not of those who shrink back. We're not. We're not of those who shrink back. We're not of those who fearfully slip away. So how can we know that? How can he know that? How can we know that of ourselves? The first step is that we need to know what deserting Christ looks like. And for this, we turn to uh, look back up at all of chapter 10, especially beginning in verse 19. Deserting Christ looks like this. A lack of confidence or affection for the work of our great high priest. Not drawing near with confidence. Not holding fast to our confession. Wavering. Not considering brother and sister. Not showing care or concern. Being isolated. Taking no part or seeing no need to stir up love and good works in the hearts of others. Sinning with a high hand or glibly or cheerfully or or unthinkingly. Not caring. Continuing in sin that way. No fear of judgment. Having no fear of God, trampling underfoot the Son of God, a disregard or belittling of the work of the cross, profaning the blood of the covenant, viewing the cross as silly or unnecessary or an overreaction. As I say these things, immediately things are coming to mind that are trends even within those who call themselves Christians for this very thing. Outraging the spirit of grace, walking in a posture of pride that that you are not a severely needy soul in need of the work of the spirit to even give you the right affections, but you've got this 
outraging the spirit of grace, not suffering well. So the opposite of the encouragement beginning in verse 32. Not a legacy of trust in the Lord when things get really tough. Not any kind of opposition for being a believer. Being unwilling or ashamed to associate with those who are very outspoken in their faith. Distancing yourself from the shame of the confession of faith that we have. Throwing away your confidence, not enduring, not holding fast to the promise of the reward. And so I want to issue to you an urgent plea that you pay attention that if any of these things are beginning to creep into your heart, that you take serious action. This is part of my role as a pastor to make myself available. If you feel a sense, if you've been awaken this morning or, or in the weeks leading up that there, there are some of these things happening in my heart and it, it makes me concerned, you ought to be, but you take the next step and, and seek help from your brothers and sisters to rebuild that trust in Christ and the willingness to hold fast. And secondly, you need to know what the opposite looks like. So we, all of that was discussing what deserting Christ looks like. So we need to know what holding fast looks like. And for that, we go to part two. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's one word, again, those who have faith. It essentially means the believing ones. We are of the believing ones. It's essentially the noun form of faith, the faith ones, the ones of faith. And this is not just a general positive hope, okay? You hear people who have no interest in Jesus at all say something like this, have faith or believe. It's the same word in the Greek New Testament, believe, have faith. Believing in something is very popular, And taking encouragement from that belief, whatever it is, is very popular. And you can find inspirational posters in office buildings all over the United States whose God is materialism, and they'll still say, believe. So what are we talking about here? Are we just those who generally believe? No. The meaning of faith is further explained, obviously, in Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. And I would argue it's even more than that. He's not offering in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11 an an exhaustive definition of faith as it's been sometimes treated. You have to bring in all of the content of Hebrews from chapter 1 to 10 at this point. It's believing on Christ. Hold fast our confession. Believe in the work of this great high priest for you. So when he says we are of those who have faith, he's meaning it specifically in a Christian context. Those who trust and believe and hold fast to the work of Christ as sufficient for you. And he says, 
but we are of those who have faith. How can we know? And here's where it comes in. This is the what it looks like to not desert Christ, to have a a deep confidence in and affection for the work of the high priest, drawing near with confidence, offering the sacrifice of praise together with your brothers and sisters, a full assurance of faith, holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, considering brothers and sisters, showing care and concern, taking a meaningful role in considering and seeking real need that exists in the lives of your brothers and sisters, seeing how you can meet those, but also understanding that you merely need their involvement in your life. It's not just if you have a project or a gap of your resources that you need to invite the body to be long in your life. It is, I need you I just need you. I need to be with you. I need to be united with you. I need to love you. I need unity with you. Not sinning with a high hand. Again, this is continuing what it means to hold fast and to not desert Christ. Not sinning with a high hand. When you sin, and we all stumble in many ways, but it's not glibly or cheerfully or happily And this exposes the gracious gift of godly sorrow. If if you sense godly sorrow in your life, when we do stumble and fall in sin, that that is a gracious gift from God that builds to assurance in your heart. Don't run quickly away from that. There is sorrow that leads to death, so have nothing to do with that. But godly sorrow leads to repentance. And if you've been given the gift of godly sorrow, don't squelch it. Also, not deserting Christ means that you have a deep and loving, real fear of God. You don't disregard or belittle the Son of God. You don't trample Him underfoot. You don't profane the blood of the covenant, viewing the cross as unimportant, you view it as important, as central to your life. You see it as sacred. You don't outrage the Spirit of grace. You don't say or or treat the Spirit as if you don't need Him. You live and think and feel a deep need for His work, a posture of humility versus pride. You've been enlightened by the Spirit, just as Lydia, her mind was opened to understand the things said by Paul. When you're given an understanding and a grasp of things spiritual, that's the work of God. How encouraging it can be if you understand that in your life. This doesn't come by mere intellect. So if you sense that you have a grasp of these heavenly things, what assurance that can give you if you understand it is from God. And suffering well. I want you to see yourself here. Even as we have been in a time as a nation with great confusion and suffering and challenges. 
want you to see yourself in that text because the author is saying verse 29 because he has confidence to say it because he's seen them suffer well. It's one of the main reasons he can say it. So don't disregard, don't belittle God's work of sending suffering and trial into your life because if you suffer and endure well, that is the most significant, powerful, lasting proof and ground for your assurance. Because people who don't have the hope in the age to come don't suffer well. They don't suffer hoping in Christ and cheerfully accepting the plundering of your own possessions. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 12. And understand this, he's not only talking about severe, outward, obvious persecution. We read in the Revelation to John that it is not primarily nations and kingdoms and rulers on earth that are our opponents. The dragon, that old serpent from of old, is our opponent. And he would seek to consume the church. And so he will oppress her at all costs. And he will bring all sorts of trials and tribulations, even as God uses all that to purify us and to aim our hearts and our affections towards heaven. But he is a raging serpent. So the persecution you receive may not be from people because you're a Christian, but even beneath all the trials and tribulations in your life, even as Job suffered the loss of all things, we have one great enemy. But thanks be to God, he has been defeated. Sometimes being partners with those so treated, that we might seek out affiliation with those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. Compassion for those who are in prison. This is an otherworldly hope. Because it says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You don't throw away your confidence. You believe in the great reward for those who endure. As Jesus says to the seven churches, for the one who overcomes. And then he lists seven different blessings that are so staggering that they each deserve more than a sermon themselves. But one of them, I will grant that he will sit on my throne with me. Do you understand the gravity of the reward promised to you in Christ? And it's not here necessarily. We will receive many blessings here. But the main ones, the biggest ones, the most hope-giving ones, the ones that give us this otherworldly hope that enable us to suffer well and to joyfully embrace the plundering of our own possessions is one that is in the next world. And we sound like crazy people when we talk that way. I understand that. Even in context of very mature people, the idea of all of our chips being slid onto the table for the next life is crazy. But that's why Paul can say, if Christ has not been raised, we are of most people to be pitied. Because that's where all our chips are.
This holding fast to Christ gives us bold assurance. As the Heidelberg Confession says in the first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. You sense the boldness and boast in that? Everything must work to my salvation. God has made it so in Christ. Yes, your suffering. Yes, your blessing. Yes, your success. Yes, your failure. All the craziness in the world. All of that must work for your salvation and your good because of what Christ has done. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. So how should we now live? How should we then live? Here are a few ideas. I'll give them to you quickly. Make this true of yourself, please, today. Take hold of the promise of life in Christ. Become one of the ones who through faith preserves your soul. Not through personal reformation or a long 12-step process. Faith in Christ, now, today. May the day, today be the day of salvation. Understand what I'm saying. Sincerity doesn't prove the new birth, okay? A lot of people have been sincere. But perseverance, holding fast through trial, proves sincerity and conversion. Make that the case for you today. Forget what lies behind. Hold fast to Christ this day. Secondly, understand that the verse itself contains the solution. If it's not the case in your heart, if you find in yourself, in your heart, I I don't hold fast to Christ like that. I, I, I kind of feel myself in the category of the deserters who've shrunk back and secretly crept away. Believe on Christ and be saved. Number three, the community of faith is so significant in this. Are you seeking it out and giving encouragement to and receiving encouragement from your brothers and sisters? You ought to do so as if your life depended on it because it does. We each ensure that one another makes it home safely. Because, and here's the thing. It's not as if our work does the work that God does in keeping safe those whom he has given his son. The point is there are many people who are on their way towards conversion. And we don't know that they're not converted yet. And if we give up, if we just think they're safe and in the clear, they'll fall away. They do. Fourth, reinterpret your suffering. Understand this. You must see this. This is so encouraging if you can see it. Reinterpret your suffering 
and so make it such that it gives assurance. It's not pointless. Whatever your suffering is, even if it is not coming against you because you claim to be a Christian, it is in some sense coming against you because you claim Christ. Because it's from the enemy or it's from the Father sanctifying you. So if you hope in Christ, if you consider it joy and let endurance have its full effect, then even if it's not blatant persecution, it can produce assurance. Because if you suffer well through those things, then the only possible answer is because you have been born again. Reinterpret all your suffering this way. Number five. This assurance is the work of the Spirit as Christ is exalted. Because the object of faith in verse 39 is none other than Christ. We tried to make that clear. It's not just general faith, it's faith in Christ. So as Christ is exalted and lifted up and shown to be glorious and the treasure beyond all treasures, that is when the Spirit works assurance in our hearts because our hearts are inclined to Him. So what is your aim to get out of life. If it's anything other than gaining Christ. Then the spirit does not infuse you with power or strength. He is rather drawing you to divert your eyes from the things that appeal to the flesh. To view him. So that he can in fact work assurance and strength in your heart. So on the heels of that, number six, remove everything else that gets in the way or clouds your view of Christ and his glory. The author is going to say exactly the same thing in chapter 12. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin, not just sins, also the weights that get in the way, the cloudy muck and mire that get in the way that cloud our view of the glory of Christ. Get rid of it. We don't need to discover a new method. We need to move the focus of our eyes onto Him. It's that simple. Fix your eyes on the Son of David, the Good Shepherd, our older brother, our captain, our king, our champion, our redeemer, the anointed one, the holy one, the light of the world, and the sun and light of the world to come. The one for whom the universe was made. Our beloved. The son of God. The almighty. The I am. Where's the focus of your eyes? And I could end it right there. Right? On that high point of fixing your eyes on Christ. But I want to do with this truth what the author has been doing in chapter 10. You can't stop there. Just to make sure your eyes are fixed on Christ for yourself. I want to put it in tangible terms and a clear and simple path forward because that's all, that's all internal and it's, it's hard to define exactly how is it that I set my mind on Christ because we're going to leave this room and we're going to go back to our responsibilities and our, our, the drudgery of the week, right? We're going to re-enter the things that distract us or tend to just bog us down. We're going to go right back into that. So how can this vision of Christ be something that we carry with us? Well, here's exactly how. Take this we seriously. Your brother and your sister need you to exhort them to love and pursue Christ. 
you might say, but I don't know if I do it yet myself. I'm not sure if I like them very much. I mean, I love them, but I'm not sure if I like them very much. So how can I exhort them to fix their eyes on Christ and pursue Christ, etc., etc.? Well, find a way to exhort your brother and sister to love Christ and to pursue Him. And watch what God does in your heart as a result. You will find it 10,000 times easier to fix your eyes on Jesus when your sole aim is to ensure that brother and sister do it as well. This is the way to glory. Let's pray. Father, make it so by your Spirit. Give us this bold assurance that Christ is a great Savior and that the sufferings in our life, the difficulty we endure, and all of it is to fix our eyes on Him. Help us look towards one another with this full assurance of faith and and ensure that they believe as well. And there's so much more that could be said, but Father, give us strength in our inner being so that this can happen. For your namesake and for Christ's glory, amen.